Well, good morning, community of faith. How are we doing today? Yeah, I'm so glad that you're here. You woke up, you did it. We are in our new series, I Need a Miracle. If you're here and you need a miracle, uh, you came just the right Sunday. It's the Sunday to be here. You know, we Houstonians are kind of an interesting bunch because we've bought out all the Purell in all of the stores so that it's gone up to like $100 an ounce or something, right? And then 100,000 of us will still show up at the rodeo every night, right? So it, it, it's kind of a crazy group, but I, I, but I love it. I thought about, you know, just sprinkling everybody as they came in and say, holy water, no Purell, Purell, you know. <laughs> Jesus is a really interesting guy. You say, how do you say that? When you look at the, the scriptures, for some of us who've just kind of been on that outside looking in at, at, at church or maybe in some of the different churches maybe that you might even go to, maybe if you didn't look at scripture, you would think, well, he's kind of boring. He's kind of the little guy that, you know, you see in the medieval paintings that kind of sits over in the corner, you know, with the somber blue eyes and, and, and judging everybody at the party, you know, and saying something like, what in the name of me is going on here, you know? And, but that's not who Jesus was when you see him. Like he loved a party. The first miracle that he ever did was at a wedding feast. And that's what we're gonna look at because I think there's some things that, that God wants us to see in this. And I think you'll leave excited, changed, or at least encouraged, okay? So let's look at it. Open up your little worship guide there and we'll look at John chapter two, verses one through 11. It says this, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the, the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. So Jesus is going to a wedding. I, there's something about a wedding. I, I love weddings. You know, in every wedding ceremony that, that I've ever done, there's always been something comes up that's kind of interesting or humorous. I know Laura, years back, she went to the wedding of her best friend. She was the maid of honor, and he, she was marrying this guy, and all of a sudden, right when it's like time to say I do, he got sick at his stomach and had to run out to the bathroom to throw up. But what was interesting was the best man was his twin brother, so he just stepped in, you know? <laughs> kind of weird, probably a little foreshadowing. It didn't work out so well, you know? But there's just, I also, I read this week about a wedding where the, the pastor was concerned for the bride because she was kind of timid and she was really scared to be in front of the several hundred people that were gonna be there. And so he looked up a verse, 1 John 4, 8. It said, perfect love casts out fear. And he was so excited to, to share this with Marilyn, the bride. And, and, and so he asked the best man if he would look it up and read it at just the right moment. And he said, you can just say, this is appropriate for, for Marilyn today, okay? So... It got time to read it. Unfortunately, the best man wasn't real familiar with the Bible, so he mixed up 1 John and John, you know, which is easy to do. But so he said, the pastor asked me to read this because it's very appropriate for the bride today. And he read 1 John 4, 8. You have had five husbands, and the husband you have now is not really yours, you know. And it went in this, well, you can imagine how that went. The disciples are going, Jesus, where are we going? Where are we going? We're going to the desert to pray. We're going to the temple to, to worship. No, we're going to a wedding. Why? 
because we were invited. Did you invite Jesus to your wedding? No. Did that, how'd that turn out? Did it, you know, it, you, you invite Jesus into every part of our life. There's no barrier. There's no compartmentalization with him. He wants to just be every part of it. And Jesus was fun. You know, that's, that's the thing. He was fun. He loved a party. He was accused by his enemies, the religious leaders, as kind of being too fun. You know, that wouldn't be a bad thing to be accused of, I don't think. Well, look at verse three. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus, that's Mary, right, said to him, they have no wine. Now, when we look at it, we go like, well, you need to run up to specs or they got to get to the corner market or they didn't have that, you know? This is a major catastrophe. This is a colossal social embarrassment at a Jewish wedding of this day. You see, the bride and the groom had already been engaged for one year. That's what they would do. They would have a one-year engagement, a betrothal, they called it, and you could only break it by divorce, but they didn't consummate the marriage. What that one year was about was for the groom to prove that he could take care of the bride. He's kind of proving it to the dad, you know? And it's interesting because he would build a house for the bride or at least add on rooms to his folks' house, you know, and, and, and get this all ready. A lot of cultures still do that today. Claude Nikondeha, who is our, uh, our guy on the ground in Burundi, you know, he's Burundian. And many of you have met him. He's like the sharpest, one of the sharpest guys in the world. Um, he married an American girl, Kelly. And Kelly said yes to him. And he took off, went back to Burundi. And she, unbeknownst to her, he's building her a house on his parents' land, because that's what you do in Burundi, and that's what he knew. And he built her a house with his own hands. He showed it to me. It looked like it had been built with his own hands, you know? And, and it was out in the middle of nowhere, and, and she came to Burundi finally and to meet his parents, and they're all excited, and then he goes, God, you're not gonna believe this. He took her like an hour out into the middle of nowhere, and he shows her there's a field, and there's a house that Claude built with his own hands in the middle of the field, and he, he goes, look! And she said, what? He goes, our house! No, it ain't, mm-mm, that ain't our house. You know, I, I'm not doing this. And so he had to learn some new cultural differences. But in this day, you would build this house and, and, and you would be ready. And also the groom paid for the wedding. And so to run out of wine at the wedding was just a major social no-no. It means that like the dad's looking and go, this guy's not ready, this guy, doesn't have the resources. This guy can't do what needs to be done. And fathers, you know, if you've had a, a, a daughter that you gave away, that was when, can this guy take care of her? You know, I remember when I married Laura, I was a little all over the place. I'll admit it, you know, and, and someone asked her dad, Archie, one day and said, uh, what's Mark doing? What's he going to do? And he said, only God knows. <laughs> and then I don't think he was sure that God knew, but you know, you have that, that fear. And so this marriage could be over before it even started. But here's the thing. He ran out of resources. What do you do when you come to the end of your resources? Emotionally, physically, even financially. When you look at your problems, they always seem too big for you. Too big to handle. Why? Because they're too big to handle. A lot of times. I mean, who among us is equal to the task of the daunting things that come upon us in this life? Divorce. 
What about a child who's struggling with addiction? We think of all the different things, a vicious rumor being spread uh, about us or some massive financial setback or our parents growing older or us growing older. All of these things, health issues, a massive heart attack. We're, are, we're not equal to that. Who is sufficient for that? But they're going to come. Our emotional and physical resources won't be enough. Luckily, in this case where the emotional resources, the physical resources, the wine ran out, okay, someone knew what to do, the mother of Jesus. Now, she'd been hanging around him for a while, 30 years at this point, okay, and she just came to him and said, they have no wine. I mean, why go to Jesus? Up to this point, he had worked no miracles. John said this was his first sign. This is his first miracle. We're going to see that in a minute. But so you think of it this way. You know, some people said, well, Mary probably wanted him to start working miracles. I think it probably was as simple as Mary had lived with him for 30 years. She was a widow by this point, it appears. Joseph's not on the scene anymore. And, and, and so this widow, she had her firstborn, Jesus. And whenever there was a problem, who would you go to if you had Jesus in your house, right? I mean, who's going to care more? Who's going to be more involved? Who's going to have more understanding, even without the miraculous? So she just came to Jesus and she just said simply, they have no wine. Because she knew Jesus was going to be moved by this weakness. He's moved by our weakness. Jim Cimbala, who's the pastor at Brooklyn Tabernacle, he writes of a discovery that he made when he came to his lowest point in life. His daughter had run away from home. She had gotten pregnant. He was, she was out on the streets somewhere. He didn't know where she was. And this little girl that had grown up in his church singing songs about Jesus, she's out there somewhere. She, he doesn't even know what's going on. She's addicted. And he said that, let me just read it. That evening, he was supposed to preach. When I was at my lowest confounded by obstacles, bewildered by the darkness that surrounded us, unable to even to continue preaching, I discovered an astonishing truth. God is attracted to weakness. He can't resist those who humbly and honestly admit how desperately they need him. In fact, our weakness makes room for his power. We never know him in the fullness of his power until we come vulnerable in our weakness. Where are you in that? Now, it's interesting what Jesus responded to his mother, okay? Because we know what he's like. We know how compassionate he is. And yet, he said to her in verse 4, he said, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. He, he literally said, in Aramaic. And, and what is that? That means what to me and you it was a kind of an idiom a saying that that they had that 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 was like hard to understand really I mean the only time other time you see it in the scriptures it, it's like demons are saying it to Jesus like you know why are you coming why are you in here dealing you know why are you doing this it appears to be a pretty cold way to talk to your mother you know and sometimes in a passage like this it's hard to translate so trying to get it from the, the Hebrew or the Greek in the Old Testament, Hebrew in the Old Testament, Greek in the New Testament, or Aramaic, every once in a while they'll use that because that's what they were speaking regularly. They wrote in Greek. Um, it's hard to translate into English sometimes, and so we get some bad translations. But this is pretty accurate. It, it's, 
it's kind of sharp, it seems like. And what's happening? We know from the rest of John's gospel that Jesus is not easily irritated. We know that uh, he doesn't say things ever that he regrets. He never said a word that he regretted. Even when he's being tortured, he never speaks in a harsher, angry word. It's not that Jesus is in a bad mood or he's just irritable. So when Jesus answers his mother in this unexpected tone, something is weighing heavily on him. And he lets us know what it is when he says, my hour has not yet come. If you read the book of John carefully, you'll discover that Jesus refers to this hour several other times. It always refers to his death. His hour is the moment of his death on the cross. So knowing that, you can kind of see the the strangeness of the exchange. They seem to be talking about two different things, like they miss each other. Mary says, what a disaster, they've run out of wine. And Jesus says, be careful what you ask of me, I'm not ready to die. What? I mean, I think it's very unlikely that Mary knew what he was talking about when he said the hour, but she did know something about Jesus. He was different. See, God is other than us. The scripture's real clear. His ways are so much higher. They're hard to understand. So Mary didn't take offense when he said that. She said, I know Jesus' heart. I know what he's like. And there's something here that I'm missing. I'm not sure what it is. But she didn't argue. She doesn't try to ask him to explain. She just turns to the servants. And she says this. Whatever he says to you, do it. Mary gets it. She's been 30 years walking with Jesus. She knows how much he loves her. She doesn't understand what he just said. Have you had those times with God sometimes? God, I'm asking for this, and this is what comes, and you're like, uh, did we just, I think we missed each other somewhere, you know? I, I can't figure out what's going on. Here's the thing. Do you want to experience a miracle? You really want that miracle in your life? Then this is really good advice. Whatever he says to you, do it, not think about it, not ponder it, not decide about it, just do it. Elizabeth Elliot, who was this amazing woman, her husband was killed as a missionary in Ecuador, the Aka Indians who hadn't had any human interaction. He was the first missionary to go to them and they put a spear right through the middle of his chest. She says this, when you feel confused and uncertain and don't know what to do next and especially when you can't figure out the big picture, just get up and do the next right thing. You see, there's always a next right thing that needs to be done. It could be small or trivial. It's always something. Washing or cleaning or writing a note or making a phone call or paying bills or cleaning the shelves or filling an order or putting gas in the car or picking up the kids or weeding the flowers or feeding your dog, taking your pills. Life is like a river that never stops flowing even when we're confused about where it's taking us. So do the next right thing. And doing the next right thing, even when we're confused, the next thing after that will be revealed to us. And eventually, although it might take a while, we'll begin to see the way forward. I'm totally convinced, says Elizabeth Elliot, that God is at work in this awful situation, even though I cannot see it at the moment. Therefore, I will not let this thing overwhelm me because being overwhelmed will not solve the problem anyway. By God's grace, I will do the next Thing that needs to be done, trusting that God is at work. That little step forward, whatever it is, is a step of faith. Not passive, active. Because you believe God is at work. 
So here's what happens. Look at this. There were six stone water pots set there for Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. It's apparently a large feast because if you think 20 or 30 gallons a piece, and there's six of them, that's like 150 gallons, something like that. At one cup each, that would give 2,400 servings of wine. So either it's a really large feast or they really like to drink. I'm not sure which, you know? But look what Jesus said, verse seven. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. And when that head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, whoa, now whoa. When did that happen? What happened? It happened somewhere in the white spaces between verses seven and eight, right? It, he never even said anything like that. I mean, they, they dipped it out. They took it. There was no prayer, no word of command, no hysterical shouting, no, you know, screwed up face, no, come out, you demon of water. You know, nothing like that. It wasn't like any kind of big show. It's so interesting to me that, that, you know, so many times when we see miracles happen, we have this big show around it. I just don't think that's really how God usually works. Now, I think he, he'll humble himself to, to meet us wherever we are. But I don't think it's got to be like that. Look how simple. He, never, he didn't even say, turn to wine, water, you know. He didn't say anything. He, he, he just said, dip it out and take it to the head waiter. And when the head waiter tasted the water that had become wine. Is that an understatement? I love the, the Bible does that a lot. You're going like, what? Because how do you get wine? I mean, you got to have vines and water and sunshine and, you know, good earth and time. And then you got to take those grapes and, and, and crush them and ferment them. I mean, now it's wine. It's already wine. He did it already. And, and it's so understated, but it's massive. It's massive, okay? What a beautiful, simple dignity about Jesus. The water simply became wine. And here's the thing. Christ was the one to work the miracle, but the servants were the one who seemed to do everything. Like if you were an outside observer, you wouldn't have seen Christ in there at all, would you? Because he was way behind the scenes. He just told the servants, here's what you do. You go and fill the water pots, fill them up to the brim. And then I want you to go and dip some out and take it to the head waiter. And so if you're watching, you're seeing the servants work like crazy. They're dipping, they're taking, and it's wine. And you're going like, how did they do that? They didn't do that, did they? But they obeyed. They did what Mary said. They did the next little right thing. And somewhere in that process, a miracle happened because God was in it. Whatever he says to you, do it. Well, I don't, I, I don't understand. Why would you, you know, they, the servants could have gone like, you know, what, what do you mean? I mean, that's a lot of work to fill these up with water. We need wine, dude, you know? I mean, you could have had all kinds of complaints. That would have been more like what we probably would have done. Simply obey and do the next right thing. Somewhere in there, the miracle occurs. Probably without much fanfare. Almost unnoticed. But something begins to shift. It says that the head waiter didn't know where it came from. Look at that verse. But the servants who had drawn the water knew. 
The head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Save the best for last is what one version says. You have saved the best for last. You know, my dad, he's 84. He's had so much wisdom and, and given so much wisdom to me down through my life. Keep praying for him. He's really struggling with his health right now. But he said to me one time a few years back, Mark, the devil has no happy old men. And I, I, I think that's true, or old women for that matter. The devil, see what the devil does, he always gives his best first, right? Adam and Eve, remember? Look at this apple, it's good. Or look at this fruit, it's good for eating. And, and, and not only that, but you'll be like God. But there's always death in it. Look at the prodigal son. He says, I'm gonna take my inheritance now. And he goes off to this land and, and he spends it on lovers, paid lovers, you know, and friends, so-called friends who came because he had a lot of wealth. And then when it's all gone, He's not feasting with lovers and friends. He's stuck with the pigs trying to eat some of their slop. Going like, what? how did I get here? The thing is, that's God's, God's way is so opposite of that. He keeps the best for last. I, I've discovered that the world is constantly telling us in one way or another that when we're, it's, it's the young, the youth is the time that we drink the wine of life. You know, the, the days of wine and roses or whatever. Youth is the only time that we can really find excitement, adventure, worthwhileness. Some are always looking back to our, oh, my college days or, oh, you know, all of these kind of things. One night this past week, I, I couldn't sleep. Been doing that a lot lately. I don't know why, but probably because of my dad's health and other things. But I, I, it's, it's like 2 o'clock in the morning. And there's just enough light in the bedroom coming from... The, the little window in, in our, our bathroom that came out through that door that I was able to see Laura lying beside me, eyes closed, serene, peaceful. She looked like a, an angel, which you can imagine. She would look like an angel, right? And, and she just looked like an angel. And I just thought my wife gets more beautiful with each passing year. And the, I started thinking about the beauty of our life together and the depth of our friendship and love and the deep joy of it all, it, it, it just kind of overwhelmed me. And I found my, my heart lifted up to God saying, truly, God, you have saved the best wine for last. I like the words of Robert Browning. He said, grow old along with me. The best is yet to be the last of life for which the first was made. But you see, it wasn't always like that. Year six and seven for Laura, all we could do, all we could do is put one foot in front of the other and try to take the next small right step. Numb, sad, tired, tired to the bone, hopeless, plod, plod, plod. Didn't look glamorous, wasn't fun. Whatever he says to you, do it. Counseling, vulnerability, persistence. And that night I said, thank you, God, for the strength you gave us, for the, the miracle that you worked in a turning somewhere in there as we took those little tiny steps, not to divorce like I was sure we were going to do. God is so good like that. 
what this steward was saying, what this head waiter was saying, he was saying, nobody keeps this quality of wine to the end. Nobody does that. It, it was like nothing else he had ever tasted. So the party is back on. And then verse 11 sums this up for us. And, and I think this is really important. John says something really interesting. He said, this beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. He uses the word signs. He didn't say miracles. It's really good translation here. Signs, it's a different word than used in all the other gospels. He says this was a sign. It wasn't just a miracle, it was a sign. What does a sign do? Well, it gives you instruction, right? Stop. It also points to something coming ahead. Have you been going down the highway and you see that sign? It says Bucky's 131 miles ahead. You're going, oh, there's a Bucky's. I can't wait to get there, right? I mean, it, you see those kind of things. What is this a sign of? Jesus hinted at it when he said, my hour has not yet come. Why does he connect a simple request with the hour of his death? Think about the symbolism in this. If the shame and guilt of the groom represent the shame and guilt and sin of our world, what does the wine represent in Jesus' mind? What is missing from this picture? And I think we begin to see it as he takes these ceremonial water pots used for cleansing, used for purification. That was an outward thing, an outward sign, but this whole thing was pointing to something. He's seeing something else. He's saying this. When he says to his mom, what to me and to you? He's saying, yes, mom. I can bring joy to this world. I can cleanse humankind from its guilt and from its shame. I've come into the world to do exactly this. I want to bring joy, but oh, mother, I'm going to have to die to do it. See, Jesus was always thinking as the bridegroom. It's an interesting thing in the Bible. He, he thought of himself as a groom. They said to him one time, why don't your disciples fast like John the Baptist's disciples? Why don't they fast and, and, and not eat and, and go without food and do this religious thing? And he said, why would the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is still with them? And they're like, I don't know what you're talking about, but that's what he said, right? And then in Revelation, the last book of the Bible, this same John who wrote this, he's caught up to see what happens at the end of the age and listen to the very end of the age. Revelation nine, verse six. And I heard what seemed to be an immense crowd speaking almost like with one voice. It was the sound like a roaring waterfall, like the sound of clashing thunder, a multitude calling out, praise the Lord for the Lord our God, the all powerful reigns supreme. Now is the time for joy and happiness. He deserves all the glory we can give him for the wedding feast has begun. The marriage of the lamb to his bride has commenced and his bride has prepared herself for this glorious day. She has been given the finest linens to wear, linens bright and pure, woven from the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said, write this down. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage feast of the lamb. What I am telling you are the true words of God. At the end of time, there's going to be a feast to end all feasts. But he's saying, mother, for my people to fall into my arms, 
and to become one with me, I'm going to have to die. For my people to drink the cup of joy, I'm going to have to drink the cup of death and judgment. How is Jesus going to bring us joy? By losing all of his. By leaving his heavenly existence with his father. By leading a lonely, miserable life. By going to the cross and dying in our place. You know, some have said to me, that's one of the things I don't like about your, your, your religion, your Christianity. It, it's, it, it seems on the surface just to be another primitive religion with slaughter and sacrifice at the center. But that's to completely misunderstand the gospel. Because what, it, what it's saying is that this Christ who is God in flesh, he came to pay our price, an ultimate price. But it was our price, our debt. Does that seem illogical? Think about it just in, in everyday terms. I, I was talking to my father-in-law a while back, and he had this, this vase that he had collected on his trips around the world. And this happened to be, like I mean, it was basically a priceless vase. No one could really quite put a price on it. And he had, a, there were a couple of maids, you know, that had come from like the Molly maid or whatever, you know, and they're cleaning and she knocked it off and it crashed on the floor. And she said, oh, I'm so sorry. Just take that out of my salary. Well, probably not going to happen, you know, because anybody would have priced it, you know, at least at like 50,000, 100,000. You don't know how much money. She had no idea what she had done. But Archie said, that's all right. I'll take care of it. And he took that vase. He took it to a place to get fixed. It cost several thousand dollars to get fixed. It's no longer priceless because it's been broken. There was a debt. There was a, a debt to be paid. Someone had to absorb the debt. Either the maid could do it. She didn't have the resources to do it. She didn't know it. But Archie said, I will absorb the debt. See, somebody's got to pay the debt. It's written into the very fabric of the universe. Jesus wrote it in. God wrote it in when he created the universe. You reap what you sow. Every debt must be paid. Justice must be served. Consequences follow actions. We were made in God's image. That's why when we see one of these political elite, you know, getting off with just a slap on the wrist, we're going like, that's not fair. Catch yourself saying that? That's because we're made in God's image. God is fair. Debts must be paid. Justice must be served. And it will. Oh, it will. See, Jesus didn't come as an example to show us if you can live like this, live like me, and you'll go to heaven. If you can just be good enough, that's disheartening. We could never do that. He didn't come to teach us how to save ourselves. He came to save us himself. He came to pay the debt. The Bible is really clear. The wages of sin equals death. Someone has to die. Someone has to absorb the debt. Someone has to receive the just well-deserved wages of humanity's fall and our own personal fall. He said, I didn't come to teach you how to find God. I'm God come to find you. Changes everything. I've come to live the life you should have lived, yes, but also to die the death you should have died. I take your place. He paid the wages of sin for every one of us that's ever walked the planet and his disciples believed in him. Let me just end with three practical thoughts. I want you to write these down. That's why I left some blanks there for you. And we'll just close with these real quickly. First thing, I think it's real important. Decide who will pay your debt. 
Are you going to pay it? You don't have the resources. Are you going to let him pay it? That's what stepping in to believing in him is all about. Okay? Number two, realize how Jesus sees you. I think if we can get this, it'll change everything. He, he gives metaphors to let us know how our relationship is in the Bible. And he says, I'm the bridegroom. You're the bride. I'm going like, oh, I make an ugly bride. Not to Jesus. We, his people, are his bride. He said, the bride is going to sit with me on my throne forever and rule and reign with me. I don't know what all that means, but it's something crazy. He's going to have a whole wedding feast celebrating. We're not going to go as guests. We're going to go as the bride. I mean, it's going to be this incredible thing. Now, it's still all about Jesus. Don't get me wrong. But have you ever watched a bride? Yes, last night my, my uh, wife went to a wedding. And to watch the groom seeing the bride come down the aisle, he's just bawling already. I mean, he just, I mean, head over heels in love with the girl, you know? That's how Jesus sees you. Can you believe that? Can you see that? Can you understand it? Why, why, why would he use a metaphor like that? Because that's how much he loves you. That's hard to, to understand. You're going like, I don't know. You don't, he, I mean, he knows you completely and he still loves you like that. And then lastly, deal with the present by looking to the future. Deal with this present by looking to the future. Listen to how Edmund Clowney put it. I wrote it there for you. Jesus said amidst all the joy of the wedding feast, sipping the coming sorrow. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, the Bible says. So that today, you and I who believe in him can sit amidst all this world's sorrow, sipping the coming joy. In the midst of that wedding feast, others are drinking wine. Jesus is tasting the bitterness of his cup, the death that lay before him. So he gives us this stability. Even if right now you're in the midst of deep sorrow, sip the coming joy. Trust his heart. There's something coming. Teresa of Avila said, the end of all of this, the end of reality, she said, will be so astonishing. The joy will be so incredible. The fulfillment will be so amazing that the most miserable years here will feel like one night in a bad hotel. I know that some of you, you feel like, man, I'm just, I'm in hell right now. Let me tell you something. When you're walking through hell, another thing my dad told me, keep walking. All right? Take the next right small step. There's a miracle in there somewhere. There's a miracle in there somewhere. Would you close your eyes for just a minute? Kind of block out everybody else. Just you and, and the bridegroom. You see his eyes looking at you. I love you so much, my girl. I love you so much, my little son. I love you so much. I'm, I'm here for you. I died for you. I know you're hurting right now. But I'm not a million miles away. I see every tear. I'm right there. Will you trust my heart? I know you don't understand what I'm doing. I know you can't understand my words. They seem harsh or it seems difficult. Or you say, why is God doing this to me? Will you trust my heart for you is good. You live in this old broken world and all these things are going to come. Take the next small 
right step. Whatever he says to you, do it. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.